Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Welcome to the latest podcast. Um, as usual, a lot of stuff going on, a lot of stuff to talk about. We had another big US interest rate decision this week. Uh, yesterday, we saw confirmation that the US economy contracted for the second quarter in a row. We had the latest prognostications from the International Monetary Fund about the global economy. Um, didn't make for pleasant reading. Um, we have Biden making some progress in the United States in terms of pushing his agenda. And um, he is trying to arrange an in-person meeting with Xi Jinping, uh, which is the first time Xi Jinping, I think, has would have met anybody in about three years. Uh, we have the ongoing leadership battle in the United Kingdom with Rishi Shunak basically admitting that he hasn't much of a chance of winning the leadership um, on September 5th. And Ben Wallace came out um, supporting Liz Truss, uh, which I think is a significant move. Um, we have very weak retail sales numbers out of Ireland yesterday. Um, and, and because the cost of living crisis is clearly having a significant impact, but at the same time, board gosh, record, re, re, reported very strong earnings yesterday. So at least somebody is benefiting from the escalation in um, energy prices. And of course, that I think brings to the surface again, as it is doing in many countries, the whole issue about an energy windfall tax. Um, and then in markets, um, I, th I think quite amazingly, given what's going on, um, US equity markets are actually having a good time, a relatively good time at the moment. 
So it just shows you that markets have a tendency to build in every bit of bad news that could possibly come down the track um, and then ignore it when it materializes. So there's, there's an interesting um, agenda, I think. Um, I guess I'd like to start off with the International Monetary Fund and its latest prognostications for the global economy. And of course, um, okay, we there's no point going over their current assessment other than to say that the tentative recovery in 2021 has very firmly run out of steam for reasons which I think we all well understand at this stage. But looking at the risks ahead, um, the IMF was quite categoric in saying that the risks to the outlook are overwhelmingly tilted to the downside. Um, the war in Ukraine could lead to a sudden stop of European gas imports from Russia. And indeed, I noticed in the Irish Times business section this morning um, a headline about the possibility of serious energy shortages here in Ireland later in the year. Um, the IMF also talks about the fact that inflation could prove harder to bring down than anticipated. Uh, because, as we've discussed, labour markets are still much tighter than expected, given what's going on on the economic front at the minute. Um, we have the ongoing you know, situation with COVID-19 in China. And um, there is also, and this is something that hasn't really attracted a lot of attention, but there is an ongoing property sector crisis uh, boiling up in China, which could do serious damage to the Chinese economy, ultimately. And then the final piece that the IMF talks about, the final risk, is the geopolitical fragmentation that's happening around the world and its potential to impede global trade and cooperation. So there's a long list of risk factors there. And I, and I think in any discussion of the global economy at any point in time there are always significant risks out there that one needs to think about some of those risks materialize others don't but i think it is very clear at the moment that the list of risks seems much higher and seem much more serious than um, would normally be the case so lots of reasons to be pretty um cautious I'll put it that way, about the global economic outlook over the last over the next 12 months. And um, yesterday we got the confirmation that the U.S. economy contracted during the second quarter. Um, and that's the second consecutive quarter doesn't technically um, define a recession. There's there's a lot more economic data, I think, will be required before the Bureau of Economic Analysis will actually declare um, a recession, but it's clear that the US economy is losing significant momentum. And two features of the GDP report yesterday were that number one, consumer spending has weakened significantly. And secondly, that business investment has slowed down. And I think given the cost of living crisis, given the fact that interest rates are going up in a pretty aggressive fashion, uh, there are no surprises that consumer spending would be pared back and that business would become much more cautious about future um, investment intentions. We had the Federal Reserve delivering the second consecutive interest rate increase of 0.75%. Um, and, and it is very clear now that the Federal Reserve is in the midst of one of the most um, aggressive cycles of monetary policy tightening than we've seen since the 1980s. 
And uh, the Fed made it clear in the statement that um, it anticipates that ongoing increases in the interest rate target range will be appropriate over the coming months. So a, a lot going on there. But as I said in my introduction, um, equity markets um, not terribly bothered by it all. Yeah, I think the equity market thing is interesting. Sometimes there is information from what equity markets do. A lot of the time there isn't. You're just looking at noise and you're probably doing your mental health a disservice by trying to interpret what equity markets are doing when in fact they're just behaving in a crazy fashion or in a fashion that doesn't convey any actual information. The second thing about markets is that you can always come up with a narrative that explains what they did yesterday, what they did last week, what they did last month. And often that's all that it is, a narrative, a story. And you can come up with multiple stories to fit the same set of equity market facts. So so you always have to be very careful when listening to equity market experts saying the market went up yesterday or last week because of reasons A, B and C. It might have done, but equally it might not have done. And usually a good rule of thumb is that we have absolutely no idea why markets go up or down in the very short term. They appear to be driven by data releases. They appear to be driven by interest rate moves. But then all of a sudden, like yesterday or this week, you get a perverse move in which the Federal Reserve puts interest rates up by a lot. And then you get two days of very strong equity market performance. So you need to be very, very careful. But it is interesting when you put it together with something else that's been happening over, just over the last couple of weeks, really, or maybe a bit longer in the case of the bond market, bond yields have been falling on both sides of the Atlantic. And the movement in 10-year German yields, for example, real, as we say in the UK, Duke of York stuff, marched all the way up the hill and all the way back down again. Quite, quite an extraordinary chart you can draw for German bond yields. But it's the same, to a slightly lesser extent, is true on the other side of the Atlantic. And consistent with that fall in bond yields has been a big, big fall in inflation expectations on the part of financial market participants, particularly bond investors. There's quite a technical way of looking at inflation expectations, particularly in the United States, but also in other countries, in which you can infer from asset prices what these, one presumes, sophisticated investors are forecasting for inflation, both in the short term and actually in the medium to longer term as well. And inflation expectations have been coming down a lot. Why have they been coming down? Well, again, we have two possible reasons. Both might be at work, but they're not mutually inconsistent. It is possible that we've just seen the worst of the energy price spikes in the United States, at least. It doesn't look that way in Europe from the gas price point of view, but certainly from the all-important oil price point of view. And commodity prices have been coming down more generally. There's also this talk of recession, which is related to the falling commodity prices for obvious reasons. We have witnessed the first half of 2022, the US economy in real terms has shrunk. That on this side of the Atlantic is actually the usual definition of a recession. There is no textbook or rule regulation that defines a recession. Different countries do it differently. In the United States, there's a committee actually of the National Bureau of Economic Research that puts together a whole range of indicators in a subjective way. I think a very common definition of recession would be, it depends who you are. Um, If you lose your job, you're in a recession, aren't you? One of the things that's happened, I think, that's really, really baffled economists is the extent to which the US economy has now shrunk for six months, and yet the labour market stayed very strong. The way that circle could be squared would be either the US economy starts growing again, or 
the labour market now shows itself to be a lagging indicator and weakens considerably. Um, we shall see. And we've got indications of both, actually. Uh, so so that, that is a bit of a conundrum. But falling real output and a strong labour market speaks to the fundamental problem afflicting economies everywhere. This is a by the way, which means arithmetically that your productivity growth is hopeless. That's true, again, on both sides of the Atlantic. And particularly on this one, actually, in the UK, the UK has a particular productivity problem. As you say, Jim, it's very messy. The equity markets in the United States, your question really to me, have been doing relatively well now for a couple of weeks. That's not a long time. It's not a long time, not enough time to draw inferences. But it's long enough to be interesting and to ask the question, what is being signalled there? My sense is, and it's only that, is that the inflation story by this time next year if not earlier, will be looking a lot better. I was tempted to say it over. Um, that might be putting it too strongly. But the inflation story is going to get better because oil prices can't go from $100 and double again. Well, they can, but they probably won't, we hope. The, the gas thing is a particularly European story. Obviously, it has global implications, particularly with respect to pricing. But what we seem to think we know about the European situation is that the the prices are obviously going nuts and they just seem to go up every day at the moment. So we really do have a problem from the point of view of gas prices. I spoke, I think, only a week or two ago about combined gas and electricity bills in the UK this autumn could be as much as three, three and a half thousand pounds a year. We're now talking about them being 4,000 plus at current gas prices. That's to heat um, and use electricity for your home. This is an average, you know, three, three and a half bedroom semi, which can, you know, averages can conceal a lot of sins. But imagine an average Irish household paying up, getting close to 5,000 euros a year for a bill. That, that's a, a serious, serious hit to household incomes that have to find that money out of taxed income. And I think, you know, it's going to cause a lot of economic, social and political problems if prices stay at those sorts of levels for very long. We're talking about one month, January, the coldest month usually, or the biggest heating month in the UK, the average bill will be in euros, uh, over 600 euros for one month in, um, in January next in the UK. So it's it's pretty serious. But we've got to split out the issue of price from supplies. Pricing serious enough, but will there be enough gas at any price? And the sense that I get from listening and talking with and reading about people who claim to be experts on the German situation, where the, where this situa- the supply situation from Russia seems to be most acute, is that they're on a knife edge when it comes to the supply side of things. That's parking price for the minute. That if the winter is an average winter temperature-wise, and they manage to get their um, storage tanks up a bit further over what's left of the summer, they will probably avoid uh, supply outages. But it's on a knife edge, a colder winter than normal, if they don't manage to buy enough gas over the summer from alternative sources to Russia, they could be in trouble. Um, The betting seems to be that they will avoid actual supply constraints, power cuts, if you like, but nobody is that confident. Um, as I say, it, it's on a knife edge. And as you know, Jim, the Germans have announced just over the last couple of days that they're turning off uh, flood lighting of public buildings. Showers in places like swimming pools and the like are going to be cold rather than hot. 
And so they're taking it very, very seriously. And the evidence, the emerging evidence from, from Germany is that individuals and companies are taking it seriously already as well. And that these uh, government measures to cut consumption of gas are being echoed in, in private sector behavior. But it's a knife edge. I think that brings us all the way back talking of knife edges to, to where you began, which is talking about the risks to the world economy. It's, yeah, it's very easy to talk about a very long list of risks and very difficult to talk about any kind of list of upsides, which is what we normally try to do when we think about the future, is we try to think of risks on both sides of the distribution. And at the moment, the risks do seem to be very, very one-sided. Um, maybe the equity market is sniffing something that we can't see, but it's not at all obvious as to why equities should go up in the face of those risks. Yeah, it's it's interesting what you say about government bond deals. I mean, I was looking at Italian years this morning. They're down about 60 basis points from a week ago, um, despite the fact that Italy is in the throes of another political crisis um, and with no certainty about the future governance of that country. And Italy, of course, is a country with massive levels of government debt, with massive economic problems. So despite all of that, Italian bond yields, you know, falling significantly in the last week is interesting. Um, the Federal Reserve, in its statement accompanying the rate increase earlier this week, said that the failure to bring inflation under control would be worse than tightening interest rates too aggressively and that the tightening cycle will not stop until there is clear and convincing evidence that inflation is beginning to slow down. So it is quite clear from the Federal Reserve, and I think this was very clear from the European Central Bank last week when it increased interest rates by a half of 1%, that central banks are taking the view that um, they will do whatever it takes to try and bring inflation back under control. And even if that means pu pushing their economies into um, economic recession, that's a price well worth paying. And I think bond markets are certainly um, reflecting that possibility that you will see a recession in Europe and the United States over the coming months. Uh, but I think what it also means is that while we're going to see a short-term ongoing spike in interest rates with the European Central Bank and the Federal Reserve uh, continuing to tighten policy. And indeed, we sort of disagreed last week on how high the European Central Bank could go. I said that on a risk-reward basis, people should probably factor in um, an increase in ECB rates in total of up to 2%. Uh, you would be less pessimistic than that, but I, I think it's it's kind of irrelevant really because it's the future and we don't know but whether rates rise by one and a half or two percent in this european cycle um i think businesses and people need to factor that in but i think what's also clear is that if you look beyond this short-term interest rate cycle um that you could see rates coming back down again um you know as economies go into recession and i i, I tend to agree with you that um, I don't believe this inflation problem is going to become embedded in the system. Um, I think you will see the headline rate uh, probably in 2023 at this stage starting to come down quite aggressively and that this period will be seen as a blip in inflation rather than the beginning of something more permanent as we saw back in the 70s and the 80s. Uh, but 
it's clear that central banks are not going to take any risks on that. And as I say, they seem intent on tightening interest rate policy as much as necessary in order to bring uh, prices back under control. And I guess central banks, particularly the Federal Reserve, would be saying to itself at this point, actually, this policy is starting to work. You know, um, the economy is slowing significantly. Inflation expectations, as you've described, have started to um, change somewhat. Um, And I guess the European Central Bank will be able to come to the same conclusion over the next month or two. Uh, The next Federal Reserve meeting is in September, so it'll be interesting to see what the economic backdrop is like at that stage. Um, but it's, uh, it's, 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 it's an interesting story out there. And um, on the equity front, um, I mean, I've no idea if global equity markets have bottomed out already, uh, but it is worth reminding ourselves what happened back in March 2009. Um, we were a couple of years into the great financial crash. Um, we'd come through a, a lot of really, really difficult global events and the world was full of risks that were skewed to the downside, a little bit like at the moment. And yet, in March 2009, equity markets bottomed out and subsequently went on a 12-year bull run, basically. Um, it wasn't uninterrupted. There were periods of volatility, but it was a pretty decent equity market performance. Um, so are we at that situation again? Um, we'll be able to answer that question in a couple of years uh, but you, you you could certainly sense at the moment that perhaps equity markets have already built in as much bad news as there is out there. Yeah, that's well said, Jim. We always have to remind ourselves of stock market history, that the turn, whether it be from a bull market or a bear market perspective, often comes when people least expect it. The, the starkest example that we've got in recent history is that date, March 2009. But I'd also venture March 2003, as being a similar date going further back, when markets turned for no apparent reason. There was no evidence or data or story or narrative that said, right, this is the moment, ring the bell, off we go. Quite the reverse, actually, for for both dates. And so it could, we have said on this podcast in the past that when the turn comes, it will be at a time when nobody expects it. And one of the things that's going on at the moment that leads me to be a wee bit more relaxed about the equity market's future than perhaps all of those risks would suggest, is the ever-increasing crowd of commentators, analysts, strategists, actual investors coming up with incredibly negative, bearish narratives for our economic, financial and stock market future. And so when everybody is leaning one way, the contrarian in me likes to think that maybe that it's all in the price, to use that cliche, or that it may even be right to start going the other way with one's money, if one had any. There are two prominent people I'm thinking about here. One is a guy called Jeremy Grantham, who for a long time, for years, has been talking about the stock market going down 50%. And last week, he was out saying it's it's got another 20% to go, having already done 20, between 20, 20-something percent at that point in time. The other is a guy who, for years, went by the nickname Dr. Doom, a chap called Professor Nouriel Roubini, and he's been very prominent on the airwaves talking about people are insane if they think that we're going to get away with a shallow recession, 
people are daft if they think that the stock market has bottomed and he has been quite explicit in his forecasts that the market will fall by 50%, the US equity market that is. And I could go on. There are plenty of others who are saying that. And as we have said on this very podcast, the list of things to worry about is a long one. The list of things to be relaxed about is a very short one. But that that's all known, isn't it? I mean, we're, we're talking about it. We're ex- explicitly going through each of the risks. And the whole point about markets is that they are supposed, to, in textbook terms at least, to be forward-looking. And maybe some or all of that is already in the price. Yes, but- I, d- I doubt, Chris, if we've come out with anything this morning in terms of risks that um, are not well-known out there in markets for some time now. So... You know, I I think you're correct. You you would have to think that all of that bad news is already discounted in the price. There's also another old cliche that talking about something is very different to living through it. So one of the things I do think that even if we do know about all of these risks, if they all came to pass, it would be, it would be very grim indeed. And I think that even um, a relatively forward-looking stock market might find it. Uh, somewhat difficult to live through uh, all of those risks, actually. Uh, how do our North American friends say it? Eventuate. Eventuate, um, yeah. But anyway, Jim, I, one of the things I'm interested in is is what actually is happening in Ireland. Because up until now, these things, you know, the UK economy has clearly stopped growing. The US economy, on one definition at least, is in recession. Um, how's Ireland doing? Up up to the end of June, um, uh, one of the best indicators of economic activity, exchequer returns, incredibly strong. Um, earlier next early next week, we will get the end July exchequer returns. Um, I think it'll be really interesting to see what happens during the month of June. The sorry, the month of July, the various in, um, tax headings. Because uh, that could give us an indication of some turn in the economy. Um, my view would be, I think the tax revenues will continue to be very strong. Uh, the labour market is still very strong. We we'll get the end July unemployment data uh, pro- early next week. Um, I think the labour market, the anecdotal evidence, is still strong. Uh, the one um, there's there's a couple of I guess pieces of evidence that suggest otherwise. I mean, consumer confidence over the last six months has been declining sharply. Uh, There are no surprises there, because if you think about the negative news and events that consumers have been hit with, rising interest rates, um, energy prices, food prices rising, the whole cost of living crisis, all of this deep uncertainty about the global economic outlook, the ongoing negative news flow from Ukraine, and so on. So there's no surprise that consumer confidence has fallen very, very sharply. And we're now starting to see at least tentative evidence that this is starting to materialize in a reduction in consumer spending. Uh, This week, we got the retail sales numbers for June. And I stress that these retail sales numbers refer to the purchase of goods and not services. So it's roughly 35% of total consumer spending. So it's it's not totally indicative, but uh, the clear message was that the volume of sales fell by 1.3% in June with sort of discretionary items of expenditure most adversely affected. So we're talking about clothes, volume sales down, DIY products, 
big ticket items like electrical goods. And indeed, um, I just checked this morning before I came on the latest um, car sales numbers up to last night and car sales so far this year are down by about 2.4%. Some of that, I stress, is down to the fact that there are serious supply shortages on the car market. And in fact, many manufacturers, um, partly as a result of the Ukraine war, are having serious difficulty delivering um, electric vehicles in particular, where, which is where all the demand is at the moment. But tentative signs, Chris, that the economic cycle here is starting to turn. And I would have concerns for the SME part of the economy over the coming months, because um, obviously those that export are likely to find their markets slowing down. Uh, but domestically, um, consumer spending slowing down, um, the all of the input costs to production are still rising, labor costs, energy costs, and now interest rates on the way up. Um, and the ability of small and medium companies to pass on higher prices in the current environment would be heavily constrained. So I think margins are going to take a squeeze. So I, I think the SME sector um, is worth watching and monitoring over the coming months. Um, I would certainly argue that on September 27th, when the budget is going to be delivered here, that rather than engaging in gimmicky cost of living measures, um, government should focus very strongly on providing as much support as possible to that SME part of the economy, because I think that's where the real strain is going to be over the coming months. So in a nutshell, Chris, you asked me the question, I would say the Irish economy has been largely unaffected to date by all of these negative global developments. But I do sense that things are starting to turn and I would expect over the next six months, a deceleration in Irish economic activity. Um, I was asked the question by a media outlet during the week uh, as part of a survey of economists, um, the prospects of recession in Ireland, a technical recession in the next six or nine months. And um, I, I couldn't give a generic answer to that because the Irish economy at this juncture actually is made up of, I, I think to a much greater extent than most other countries, a number of very different economies. You know, we have the public sector economy, which is still doing very well. We have the multinational economy, which is still doing very well. Uh, deep pockets, the ability to pass on higher prices and so on. And I note in the States overnight that the latest results from Amazon and Apple have been reasonably good. So that bodes well for the uh, multinational sector here. Um, but then there is that part of the economy that's, you know, the SME part of the economy, the indigenous part that is exposed heavily to domestic consumer spending and so on. Um, that is, as I say, facing all of these massive increases in input costs with um, interest rates, the latest addition to that. I would worry about that part of the economy. So I would expect actually parts of the Irish economy to technically go into recession in the next six to nine months, other parts not. So it, it's, a, it's a mixed picture, but um, watching the data materializing here over the coming months will be incredibly interesting. Yeah, it's a mixed picture for the multinational sector as well, Jim. You mentioned Amazon and Apple overnight being okay, 
but Intel overnight wasn't. Of course, Intel has a strong Irish presence. Big one here, yeah. I'm, I'm not suggesting there's a link between um, results and what might happen, but it's mixed. And, and Meta, the, the, the company formerly known as Facebook, reported its first ever fall in quarterly revenues a couple of days ago. So it, it, even for the multinational sector, there are some good signs and there are some not so good signs. It's not by no means catastrophic for that sector at all. Chris, can I just ask you a question? Moving on slightly, um, we, we mentioned energy windfall taxes, which is becoming, I think, globally a topic of debate at the moment. Um, as I said in my introduction, Board Gosh yesterday uh, releasing very positive results on the back of soaring gas prices. Does and, and energy companies generally over the last six months have been doing really well on the back of elevated prices. Um, and yet the consumer has been totally screwed at the same time. So what do you think of the notion of imposing windfall taxes on energy companies? I think it's obviously a good political idea because it makes abundant political sense at a time when doing the right thing seems to cost you votes. And this is the fundamental problem of our democracy. And I think Jean-Claude Juncker of, of Luxembourg and the EU famously said, we know how to, we know what to do, we know what the right thing to do is, but we don't know how to get re-elected if we do it, which is often the way with economic policy in general and policy trade-offs, policy choices that uh, politicians have to make and indeed explain it to their people. The populist parties everywhere are, um, in the UK we call them cakeist, after Boris Johnson's famous, what's your answer to the question, what's your policy? He says, I want to have my cake and eat it. And he applies that to everything. There's a wonderful article in the FT this week by Robert Shrimsley um, explaining why uh, Liz Truss will win the election, is that she's not just cakeist, she's gone full gatto. <laughs> and it's a wonderful piece, and it explains an awful lot about the current state of British politics and why Truss is winning and Sunak is losing. But it speaks very much to this point that, you know, if you're going to have economic policy, you've got to make some very difficult choices. And this would strike me as being a very easy thing for politicians to do, to tax um, oil and gas companies for their windfall profits, because there is a, a sliver, a semblance of economic logic to it. Not, not, not much of a one, to be honest, but you, you can just about make the case and do something that's popular that might actually help the situation. The oil and gas company, I'm not going to, def I'm not a lobbyist for the oil and gas companies, I'm not going to defend them. But they would all argue that um, if you're going to make these sorts of decisions, it should be symmetrical. And that when the oil and gas price falls, um, you should subsidise us, which of course wouldn't be quite so popular. So there, there are lots of arguments about this. The right way, to, the right way as an economist to think about the taxation of anything, but particularly oil and gas in the context of your question, you say, okay, set up a taxation system that taxes it properly so that the more money you make, the more taxes you pay. That's a, a good rule of thumb, if not a principle. So I can see that it, it, you know, I don't think it makes an awful lot of economic sense to put windfall taxes on, on these companies without it being symmetrical because one day, not so long ago, the oil price is actually negative. And nobody was talking then about um, bailing poor old oil companies out. So I, I think that um, it's an idea that makes an awful lot of political and popular sense. And, and, and of all the populist ideas that are out there, it's probably the one that would do the least harm. 
because I think there are lots of reasons to, to tax these particular companies, but by more than perhaps you would otherwise do anyway for environmental reasons. When you ask policy questions, you've got to ask about it in the context of what is possible. You have to be pragmatic. You have to acknowledge the political environment that you're in. If you start talking about tough choices and you start telling the truth to electorates about what you can and can't do with economic policy generally, not just in the context of taxation of, of oil and gas companies, you end up like Rishi Sunak, you're going to lose. You end up like the current coalition in Ireland, you're going to lose to the populists. And that's just the, that's just the way of the world, is that... How are you going to... You, you, I mean, you, you talk about uh, politicians telling the truth um, generally is not a good thing um, in terms of how the lecturers reacts. We've seen Rishi Shunak um, with a certain tax policy. We see Liz Truss with a totally different tax policy. She's going to cut taxes as quickly as she possibly can if and when she becomes leader of the party. How are you going to feel on the morning of the 6th of September if you wake up to Prime Minister Truss? Um, well, I already feel that's what we're heading towards. It's quite clear that she is on all current measures, going to be the Prime Minister. I don't think she is as a, a, as bad a human being as, as Boris Johnson. So I really? think there is some improvement there. Um, oh, he's a, I, I much prefer Boris, I have to say. I disagree with you quite fundamentally there. But I, I, I think that they're all dreadful people, to be honest. Yeah. We're, 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 we're trying to just sort, you know, the wheat, uh, sorry, the chaff from the chaff. Um, they're, they're all dreadful that have very, very few redeeming features. It won't be a good feel to be waking up to Prime Minister Truss. And I'll be asking you in a year, two, three years' time, whenever it is, Jim, how you, do you feel about um, Taoiseach Mary Lou? Um, yeah, how... I, hope, I hope I'll be taking that call from some far-flung part of the world, to be honest. On that cheerful note, I, I can see you on your deck chair in, on the beach in Portugal, I think, there, Jim. Um <laughs> We should probably wrap it there, Jim. So lovely to talk to you again and um, have a great weekend. Have a good one. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other good podcast platforms. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany, and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.